coming to retreat is a very precious time, especially in the busyness of our lives. <coughs> At IMS, we call it entering Yogi Land. We've all entered Yogi Land tonight. And Yogi Land is a very special place. It's a land of silence. It's a land of depth. It's a land of aloneness and of oneness. Yogi Land is a land of intensity and immediacy of experience. It's a land without so many external distractions and diversions. And in it, we're able to come face to face with ourselves. The word Vipassana in Pali means seeing clearly. It's the meaning of the word. And as we come face to face with ourselves in this retreat situation, we learn to see ourselves with greater and greater clarity. As we do this at first, we find that our minds are often like this rushing river, a rushing torrent of thoughts and feelings and images and likes and dislikes and hopes and expectations and this range of activity and manifestation. Mostly in our ordinary lives, we're simply carried away in this torrent, in this stream. There's often not the chance or the opportunity to create enough spaciousness or enough stillness or enough calmness to actually see what's going on. And I think that you'll find this carryover from our daily lives very much present in the first few days of the retreat. The mind has this amazing habit of hopping on every train of association. Thought comes in the mind, thought train, we hop on it, we don't even know where the destination is. Somewhere down the line, a minute or two or five or ten or twenty, we find ourselves someplace. We wake up again. A retreat is a very special time for a particular purpose, very well-defined purpose. And that is to give us the opportunity to develop a powerful and sustained observing capacity. If we want to understand ourselves, 
we want to understand ourselves deeply, we need to develop a quality of undistracted attention. If we want to discover ourselves, we need to develop the ability to look, to see, to find out. It's not a question of believing what somebody else says. It's really a process of discovering for ourselves. At first, this quality of awareness, as we begin the practice, might at first be quite weak. We find that we're able to be attentive, we're able to be awake for just short moments. But what is so amazing about this whole process, this whole path of awakening, is that we actually can train ourselves to remain undistracted for longer and longer periods. We learn how to actually allow the mind to rest awake in each moment. As a strength of mind develops through our practice, something very interesting begins to happen. And that is, we begin to see beyond the appearance of things. To a large extent, we live in the world of appearances. We live on the surface of things. As our mind develops this power of undistracted attention, we open to what is underneath the surface, what is underneath the appearances. We go beyond the superficial understanding of the world, of ourselves. We start to explore in a very significant way the very great mystery of it all. We enter a whole new level of reality, a whole new way of understanding. As most of you know, or if this is your first retreat, retreat, probably are imagining, this is not an easy task. (coughs) Because what we're attempting to do is really a radical transformation of consciousness, transformation of understanding. We have such strong habits of mind, of judging and comparing and evaluating and thinking and making up stories about things, that a very great effort is required to become simple again. And in many respects, that's what the practice is about, is becoming simple. Not simple-minded, just simple. This takes a strong commitment. The commitment to be aware, the commitment to be awake. The question for us then is, where does this commitment come from? What are the things that will nurture and nourish this fire in us to be aware? 
One of the mainstays of commitment in practice, and I think this is a tremendously important quality to cultivate, to remind ourselves of, to strengthen, is the quality of interest. If we're interested in what is happening, interested in our experience, interested in discovery, then there is this great willingness to be with what's happening. Insight doesn't come from coercion, from forcing the mind, from getting into a struggle. It comes so naturally from this place of interested inquiry. That sense in the mind, whatever happens, whatever arises, let me see it, let me understand it. If we have that quality, there's a tremendous courage there, there's a tremendous steadfastness. Whatever it is that's arising in my experience, in my life, let me see it, let me open to it. Although we speak a lot of right effort and great effort, there's another side to that. And the other side of that is surrender. Another way of understanding what effort is about, not the effort to get something, but rather a quality of surrendering into what is actually there. Early on in my practice, I started doing something at the beginning of each sitting which really helped me to cultivate this quality of openness. The beginning of each sitting, I would say to myself, I surrender to the Dhamma. Dhamma means truth. And there was that sense of a recommitment each time. Let me see, whatever it is that's coming. Let me open to the whole range of experience. It takes courage because there are a lot of surprises on this journey. Sometimes it's delightfully pleasant. There are qualities of light and openness and joy and happiness that are really wonderful to be with. At other times, the practice is amazingly painful. More painful than we might have imagined. Sometimes we're really fascinated by what's going on, and sometimes we're incredibly bored. This is all part of the discovery. And so the surrender to the Dhamma means that we're surrendering to the whole flow of this journey, that we're willing to be with all of these states. We're not picking and choosing. This interest or willingness or effort or surrender is really a mainstay of our commitment. And underlying this interest or this willingness 
is another quality which is a great ally. And that is the quality, it's a quality of friendliness of the heart. Can we approach it all with this feeling of metta, this feeling of loving care, loving kindness, feeling of friendliness? We're not in battle. What the practice is about is discovery. Can we do it with friendliness? There's a 17th century samurai poem, which I'll read later in the retreat, but one line from this poem is wonderful. It says, I make my mind my friend. It's a good friend to have. And what we're doing in the retreat is just that. We're making our minds our friend. The second support for this commitment to be awake, to be aware, to be undistracted in our attention. The first is the sense of willingness, of interest. The second support for this is a certain spirit of renunciation. Renunciation is not a very popular word in America. There's not a lot of value put on it. But actually there's a, there's a tremendous power when we understand what renunciation is about. Now for these days, what we are creating here, we're creating a desert practice monastery. That's really what this has become. And what gives power to the great monasteries is precisely the spirit of renunciation. Historically, and through the ages, and through so many cultures, that's where the power comes from. Renunciation of what? There's the renunciation of pleasure as the guiding principle of our choices. Because in our lives, that's often the guiding principle. We do what will bring us pleasure. In a spiritual undertaking, in an undertaking of discovery, of understanding, of wisdom, pleasure is no longer the guiding principle. It doesn't mean that we don't experience pleasure, because in many ways, and in many unexpected ways we do, but that's not the reference point for what we do and what we choose to do. We want to come to that place of understanding that embraces both pleasure and pain equally. That place of understanding the vastness of mind, the vastness of heart, which can hold all of it. So this is a quality of renunciation, 
that we undertake in coming to a retreat. There's the renunciation for this time of our family, of our friends, of our usual surroundings. And you've all done that by coming here. This renunciation of the usual forms of relationship, the usual forms of communication, renouncing into a land of silence is wonderful. There's a, there's a tremendous lucidity that becomes apparent in silence. We begin to see things in clearer and clearer ways. There's the renunciation of pleasure as the reference point for our choices. There's the renunciation of our usual ways of relating. Even more fundamentally, in coming to this desert monastery, what feeds the commitment, what feeds the fire of wakefulness, of liberation, is the renunciation of our fixed ideas of ourselves, our fixed ideas of the world, our fixed ideas of who we are, of who we think we are. Beginning to let go of our self-images, of all these fabrications of mind that have solidified this sense of self that we have, this burden of self that we carry. The Dhamma practice is an exploration of a great mystery. And so what it requires is expressed very succinctly and clearly by Krishnamurti. He called it freedom from the known. It's easy to stay comfortable in the known. And the beauty of what we do here is we go into the unknown. And that requires a spirit of renunciation, a spirit of letting go, a spirit of not knowing. There are a few suggestions born out of years of experience with a lot of practice myself and with thousands of yogis. Few suggestions which, if you can remember or call to mind throughout the retreat, will be of inestimable help, will really serve you well as you undertake this journey. The first is the understanding and the recollection that it is natural to go through many, many ups and downs of moods. There will be times when you're excited and happy and enthusiastic and energetic and you wish the retreat would last for three years. 
And there are times when you will be bored and depressed and miserable (laughs) and wonder why you ever signed up for this thing. All of these, this roller coaster of emotions and feelings and moods, all of them are simply a display, a manifestation of different conditions, different changing conditions. This is the nature of our minds and our life. Different conditions bring about different experiences, and conditions are always changing. And so to know this, to know that this is a natural part of how it all unfolds, it gives us the strength or the perspective not to be so caught, so reactive, so identified with all of these ups and downs. If we can remember this, it gives a certain quality of spaciousness in our minds and in our practice where we allow for it. Not only do we allow for it, we begin to enjoy it. wonderful to have the chance to learn about being depressed. <laughs> you, you, you have nothing to do. You'll have some sittings, some walkings where you're really depressed. Great. Let me learn about this. This is just another part of the mind, another part of our conditioning. We're happy. We're excited. Let me learn about this. Let me learn about this. And that's how we begin to understand the incredible mystery and power of the mind <laughs> that is illuminated through all of these different facets of experience. Our only job is to be with it. Our only job is to open to it. Our only job is to understand it. It's wonderful, a wonderful gift that you've given to yourself. This is the first suggestion to try to remember that there will be a lot of ups and downs, and that's part of the journey. The second suggestion is remembering that meditation is not thinking about things. (laughs) Meditation does not mean problem-solving, although all the great problems of your life will arise to be solved. (laughs) Meditation doesn't mean creative projects, although you will find in these 10 days that your mind has become outstandingly brilliant (laughs) and wonderful creative ideas will come. There's a little Vipassana mantra which you can use to remind yourself of this. Nothing is worth thinking about. (laughs) From the point of view of meditation, in other contexts, thoughts can be very helpful. For the purpose of meditation, nothing is worth thinking about. Here we have to be very careful, because this does not mean to imply that thoughts won't or shouldn't come. Because they certainly will come, 
And it's fine that they come. The arising of thoughts is not the problem. In this mantra, nothing is worth thinking about. What I'm suggesting is that instead of choosing to follow our thoughts, choosing to go with them, choosing to get involved in them, to spin out in them, if we remember this, we can see the thoughts as they arise, be aware of them, come back to our basic object of meditation. So it's a different attitude to cultivate, not one of condemning or pushing away the thoughts, but rather not feeding them. The reason this is so important to understand, although it takes a great deal of practice to implement, is that insight and wisdom is intuitive rather than discursive. The wisdom that we develop through wakefulness, through awareness, does not come through thinking about things. It comes very intuitively, spontaneously, through a silent awareness. We're going along, going along, and all of a sudden we open to a new level of reality. It's like we may be looking you know, through a microscope at something, and in our ordinary reality, ordinary perception, we see it one way, then the microscope gets focused, and there's a whole other level to understand, to explore. That doesn't come through the thought process. It comes through the direct seeing, direct awareness. Insight is intuitive in another way, that not only do we open to different levels, we also begin to change our perspectives on our experience. Instead of seeing it so continuously from the perspective of I and self and mine and ego, this practice of awakening, this practice of awareness, we begin to get many perspectives on how things are happening. And these shifts of understanding happen by themselves, not through thought. So again, it's not to try to keep thought away, because they're going to come, that's part of the experience, but rather not to be seduced by them as much as possible. The third suggestion or reminder which will help to keep the journey on track. And that is the understanding that meditation is more than psychotherapy. The difficulty is that as we begin our practice, we begin to get a tremendous amount of psychological understanding of ourselves and it becomes fascinating. We all become terribly interesting to ourselves. And it is interesting, it is genuinely interesting, and illuminating and helpful. However, the wisdom of meditative practice takes us to some place beyond our personal stories, beyond our personal conditioning. 
It takes us to a level of understanding that is much more universal. We each have our stories. We each have the particular circumstances of our lives and patterns. And and that's important to understand and to accept, but not in the meditative practice itself to get too lost in. Because otherwise we stay on the surface of the ocean, understanding the waves, and we miss the understanding that comes from the depths. Our stories are all different. The nature of our minds and bodies is exactly the same. And that is the great beauty of the Dharma. Because when we understand it, we understand the commonality of us all. There is no difference. The last suggestion is the understanding that although meditation and although retreat is not a holiday in the sense of being a place where we simply follow every desire, it actually can be a lot of fun. And so it's an encouragement to have fun while you're here. There's something tremendously fulfilling about actually being present. It's really the most fun thing we can do. Just think for a moment. What other activity could you imagine doing from 5.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, every single moment. I mean, could you eat that way? (laughs) Couldn't have sex for that long. (laughs) Or read, or... I mean, any other activity, after a certain amount of time, we get tired, we get bored, we get disinterested. When the meditation is cultivated, when this quality of wakefulness is strong, it's amazing that the mind stays compellingly interested moment after moment after moment. There comes a point, which might not be the first day or two, but there actually comes a point when there aren't enough hours to practice. There is so much interest. And it's all here. It's all right here within us. Dhamma practice is really the master game of life. Because it explores very precisely and very deeply the nature of life itself. It's not just a part of what we do. It's actually the very essence, the very meaning of what life is about of who we are. What is the nature of this mind and body? What does it mean to be alive? This is what we discover. And we discover it not theoretically, not from opinion, but rather through our own direct experience. 
we find out for ourselves the nature of discontent, the nature of craving, the nature of suffering in our lives. We see, we understand that. We find out for ourselves what is the experience of genuine happiness, of genuine freedom. And we're on this tremendous journey of awakening. It's an awakening of the mind, an awakening of the heart. And the miracle of it is that it is happening in each moment. So welcome to the retreat. Michelle is going to offer the refuges and precepts and beginning instruction. To open the retreat by having everyone formally take what we call the refuges and precepts. So I'd like to explain what that means before we chant them. The first refuge that we take is taking refuge in the Buddha. The words that we would chant are Buddham Saranam Gachami. I take refuge in the Buddha. What does that mean? You know, if you're a beginner, it might be something that uh, you'll have to come to an understanding with as you go along. For those of you who have meditated in this way before, you'll probably have some kind of understanding of what this means for you. For me, I've found that over the years my understanding of taking refuge in the Buddha has deepened a lot. One way that we can think of taking refuge is taking refuge in the historical Buddha, that the Buddha actually was a human being, not a god or a goddess, but a human being who actually woke up, who came to a complete or total understanding of life, and that it's our human potential to do this. Joseph described this a roller coaster ride of Yogi Land that we're going to be entering on. Um, the framework for that, you know, that we can enter this sacred space, this desert monastery, and come to a deeper and deeper understanding of what it we of what we call me or I. You know, the Buddha um, shows us that this is possible for us as human beings. One of the ways um, that the word Buddha is described as one who knows, or one who wakes up from sleeping, and it's that sense of you know, enlightenment, it's that waking up, that's possible for all of us.
One of the aspects of taking refuge that I wanted to talk about is um, gratefulness. I know when I go deep in my practice and I connect with what I'm doing, there's this enormous flood of gratefulness that I touch and to the Buddha for having shown the way, knowing that we all have to find this way ourselves. This gratefulness can flood over into our understanding of taking refuge in the Dhamma. The words we say are Dhammam Saranam Gachami. I take refuge in the Dhamma. Dhamma simply means the truth. If you think of what taking refuge might mean, it's really finding a place of safety. The truth itself is the refuge. It's the truth itself that liberates us. So taking refuge in this liberation is what we're doing when we say these words. When I first came on a retreat, I remember the feeling that I had come home. You know, it's uh, such a wonderful feeling to walk into this hall and see everyone here actually coming on this uh, roller coaster ride together. And that we ha- we're all searching for this home inside. There can be this profundity of gratefulness that, that we can have access to this, this truth <coughs> and this home. Taking refuge in the Sangha. Sangam Saranam Gachami are the words that we chant. It means, I take refuge in the Sangha. There's a lot of levels of meaning in all of these. I'm going over them very briefly. Originally, that meant the community of nuns and monks that were involved in this practice. One way that you can see it is that it's all of us here together entering upon this path of awakening together, beautifying our hearts together. In looking at my own life and the life of my parents and grandparents, the quality that stands out the most in my heart is a sense of spiritual loneliness that I grew up with and I saw that they grew up with. It's like this um, spiritual isolation uh, was so sad in my own life and those around me, in, in our culture really. I was searching very deeply for a a practice or a path that would help me to understand life, and I couldn't find it in the traditional um, ways that were offered as I grew up, the different institutions that I went to, uh, like school or church. I think that the sense of taking refuge in Sangha 
is really um, all of us coming here together and overcoming this <coughs> sense of spiritual alienation or spiritual loneliness. I think spiritual loneliness is probably the most devastating kind of loneliness that we can have, and it's very acute in our culture. If we got nothing else out of this retreat, then having a sense of safety and home to go deep inside and to, to value that, uh, this would be enough for us. It would be uh, so nourishing. It's water. So there's taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. We also take five precepts uh, to begin the retreat and throughout the retreat. The precepts are about um, sila, S-I-L-A, or morality, virtue. If you think about how much energy that we in our culture put into outer beauty, or how much value is put on outer beauty, outer adornment, it's pretty astounding. Sila, or uh, morality, is about our inner beauty. It's about non-harming, protecting life. To create a sacred space, which we're doing tonight and throughout the retreat, it takes an atmosphere of safety and trust, a real community of uh, non-harming. So we take the precepts as a way to create this protection for all of us to feel safe, to go deep inside. The five precepts themselves are really just common sense, um, but some of them are harder for us than others. It's important for us all to understand that life is sacred, that we need to be aware how important it is to act without harming. Not all of us totally understand the sacredness of life. So we need the precepts not as commandments but as guidelines to help protect ourselves and all beings as we move toward this understanding of the sacredness of life. Once we understand that, we, will, we don't need the precepts because we couldn't possibly harm. We would understand that oneness with life so deeply. The first precept is not killing. It's all around protecting life. And this means not killing an ant that might crawl in (laughs) to your room at night. Uh, It doesn't mean just not killing someone like a human being. It includes all beings. It's basically respect, the deep respect of the preciousness of life. 
The second precept is not stealing. Uh, I like to think of it as being content with what we have, living as simply as we can, so we're not robbing the resources of this earth. (coughs) So in the context of this retreat, it means not taking anything that doesn't belong to you here, and if you need something, you know, let the managers know. The third precept means not harming ourselves or others by misusing our sexual energy, respecting other people's relationships and commitments. For the context of this retreat, it means celibacy. The fourth fourth precept isn't too difficult for those of you who are yogis. It's uh, not lying, speaking the truth, not hurting others with our speech. That's one of the joys of silence, really. (laughs) You don't have to worry about this precept at all. The fifth precept is not taking drugs or alcohol that would cloud our mind or intoxicate the mind. As you can gather from listening to what these precepts are, they're basically about creating an atmosphere of simplicity and trust so we can feel uh, a friend to all beings. So if you feel like joining in, I'll say the chant and please say it after me. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Sarnam Gachami Dhammam Sarnam Gachami Sangham Sarnam Gachami Dutiampi Buddham Sarnam Gachami Dhammam Sarnam Gachami Sangham 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 Sarnam Gachami Sangham
Sangham Sarnam Gachami Sangham Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Sarnam Gachami Buddham Sarnam Gachami Dhammam Sarnam Gachami Sangham Sarnam Gachami the next part of the chants are the five precepts. The first one is abstaining from killing. Panatipata Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami the next one is abstaining from taking that which isn't given. Adina dana, Vairamani, Sikapadam, Samadhyami. The third one is undertaking celibacy. Ahbrahmacharya. Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami The fourth one is abstaining from any speech which is hurtful. Musawada Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami The fifth is abstaining from intoxicants which would cloud our mind. Sura Mereya Majapama Dattana Vairamani Sika Padam Samadhyami And this means may my sila contribute to my complete truth and happiness. Idam me silam Magapala Nanyasa Pachayo so please get in a position which is um, comfortable enough for you to stay as still as you can in. either on a cushion or on a bench or a chair. It'll be a very short sitting. (laughs) Keeping your back erect, but not too rigid or (coughs) stiff and closing your eyes.
and find the place in your body where you feel the movement of the breath the most clearly. Either the feeling of the rising and falling movement at the abdomen or the flow of sensations of the movement of the breath at the tip of the nostrils. Choosing the place that you feel the breath the most clearly and staying with this place. Without forcing the attention, bring your attention as close as you can to feeling this movement. Seeing if you can feel a whole rising movement or in-breath. Or a whole falling movement or out-breath at a time. There's no need to control the breath, this movement, in any way. It may be very vague or light. You might notice tightness or hardness, light vibrations or warmth. However it is, just letting this movement come and go, just as it is.
This is not meant to be a cold observation. but a very close experiencing as fully as you can each breath. As if it was your first or your last. At the moment you notice that your attention is wandering, making a soft mental note of thinking or wandering. And then feeling as closely as you can the changing sensations within the movement of the breath.
for the last minute of this sitting, bringing as much care as you can to feeling each breath as it takes birth and passes away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.